Hello and welcome to British Asian Women's Magazine's podcast, Brown Boss, where I will be talking to exceptional British Asian people about the cool and interesting work they're doing, how they got into it, why they do it, and perhaps most importantly, what their experience has been like doing it as a British Asian. My guest this month is Alka Joshi, the author of the best-selling novel The Henna Artist. The story of The Henna Artist is set in the decade following Indian independence and tells the story of Lakshmi, a poor woman who escapes an abusive marriage and runs away to the pink city of Jaipur. Here, she works hard to develop exceptional skills as a henna artist for the wealthy clients of Jaipur. As she is let into their homes to paint their hands and treat them with the knowledge of herbs and medicinal spices, She also learns of their secrets, but the life she has carefully curated, a life striving toward independence, threatens to be shattered when her ex-husband finds her and brings with him a sister she never knew she had. It's a tale of class, love, loss and deceit, and it's beautiful, full of vivid descriptions of the magic of India and her culture. Now Algar's second book, The Secret Keeper, a sequel set 12 years later, and focuses on the boy of Malik, Lakshmi's helper boy from the first book, is out. The henna artist is also in works to be made into a TV show, starring and produced by South Asian actress Frida Frida Pinto. Now, Alka, you didn't actually start writing until your 50s, so what was that like? I'm so glad that I waited until my 50s to start writing because, uh, well, first of all, I don't think I ever thought I would be a writer, you know, of literary uh, fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I wrote commercials. I wrote ads. I wrote radio spots. I wrote marketing brochures and websites. But um, I think I'm so glad I waited until this long to start writing about characters and about mm-hmm. feelings and about um, our personal journeys throughout our lives. Because I think at the age of 20 or 30, I didn't know enough. I did. I hadn't gone uh, through enough experiences of love and loss and loneliness and grief and all of that in order to be able to write about them the way I can write about them now. Yeah. Uh, I think my experiences were so virgin at that time. But now I feel like I've gone through enough of the same kinds of experiences so that when I build a character, I think, okay, now in this particular person's trajectory, I think this is how they are going to react. I think this is how uh, they are going to go through life. I think these are the lessons that they might need to learn. Mm -hmm. It's much easier for me to do this now in Mm -hmm. my um, you know, older age than it was uh, when I was much younger. I mean, it's so interesting you say that actually, because one of the things that I found really interesting when I was reading your books was um, the compassion that you had for the characters when they made mistakes. Um, and there were a few points, I think, especially with Samir, I should know in particular, where I felt a little angry, you know. Um, uh, he was, I just, Obviously, I think late in the second book, he gets a justice, I think it's fair to say. But in the first book, I just, I, I was like, oh, he's not getting justice, you know, for what he's done. Um, but when I thought about it afterwards, I was like, no, she's writing with such compassion. Like she's understanding kind of this character and where he's coming from. 
Um, and yeah, I guess that probably comes with life experience. And exactly. And I think it also comes from experiences with people like Samir. Right. right. I think we've we've all been there. We have all been with charming men. Uh, and the little voice in our head keeps saying, stay away from this guy, stay away from this guy. <laughs> you know, um, this guy may be fun to play around with, but don't get seriously involved with him. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's not going to be good for you in the long term. But uh, it's so intoxicating to be with somebody who is charming and making you feel like you're the queen of the moment yeah. that it, it's very difficult for us to, to stay away. So, yeah, I've had my experiences with the Samirs of this world and had been let down. And mm -hmm. I thought, OK, you know, I totally understand, first of all, how Lakshmi could have fallen for him or have, mm -hmm. uh, re uh, you know, have thought, oh, I think he's got my back. Uh, but on the other hand, I also understand what it is to be a Samir and to have been raised to think that you are God's gift to the planet. Yeah. And I think that, you know, so many South Asian men are raised to think that whatever they do is right yeah. and all will be fixed if they make a mistake. Yeah. And also that um, women are there to support them they are not necessarily there to support women. Mm -hmm. And I, that is a point that I did want to make clear uh, in both books. And I think in any book that I write, I think that we are all a product of our upbringing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our fathers and our mothers are complicit mm -hmm. in the ways that we are raised. Mm -hmm. Like I remember my father telling me when I was a kid, um, honey, go to the kitchen and help your mother. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, you know, it didn't occur to me until much later. I thought, why didn't he ever tell my brothers yeah. to go help my mom in the kitchen? Well, my mom knew better because when I would go to the kitchen with my hangdog face, because I didn't like being in the kitchen, I didn't like domestic duties. I wasn't meant for that kind of life. I knew that even as a little girl. Right. So uh, I would go into the kitchen and my mother would say to me, what are you doing here? And I would say, well, I was doing my homework on the, the dining room table along with Mother Pimpush, but, you know, my dad said, uh, you know, I should come and help you. And she said, no, 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 you go right back and you do your homework because you're going to go to a good college and you're going to have a career and you're going to do whatever you want with your life. I mean, that's so, so open-minded of her, actually. That's extremely, really extremely yeah. open-minded. And I think, you know, of course, as a girl, I didn't realize what a gift that was that my mother gave me. And so mm -hmm. as I got older and, and I'm making all of my own decisions about my career and uh, what I'm doing next and the cities I'm moving to next and whom I'm choosing as a partner, my parents never interfered. They never mm -hmm. interfered. And um, I made mistakes. Yes, I made mistakes along the way, just like Lakshmi makes mistakes. It's like all the characters in the book make mistakes. We all should have the ability mm. to make choices, even if they're wrong for us. Yeah. And I think it's only through the mistakes that we actually learn. And we need to learn for ourselves. We don't need to have other people say to us, don't make this mistake and don't make this mistake and don't make yeah. that mistake. Because <laughs> that's not the way we learn. We learn no. through experience. We do. And I'm so glad you said that, actually, because that was one of my questions to you. What was One of the things I noticed um, in the first book, especially, well, actually, even in the second one, that there is so much uh, grace um, given to the male characters by the female characters with regards to the mistakes they make, but also within the relationships that they have with one another. And I, I was just kind of wondering, I mean, I obviously a lot of South Asian women are raised um, 
to 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 be that person and to give that grace and and stuff. Um, is that something you you think that you still see within, especially within the diaspora South Asian community? I do. I see a lot of that, and um, along with the grace, there is that tremendous sense of responsibility that uh, South Asian women carry. It's the and maybe it's not just South Asian women, maybe it's women all over the world who mm. are supposed to be the caretakers of their families. Mm. You know, so we are patted on the head for being good daughters because we are taking care of our elderly parents. We are patted on the head for being good mothers because we are taking care of our children uh, even though they have transgressed. You know, we forgive them, we, we go on and uh, make a better life for them. So we're constantly being patted on the head for looking out for other people. So is it any wonder that we grow up thinking that this is our lot in life? We are meant to um, forgive. We are meant to forget. We are meant to uh, excuse. Yeah. And uh, I think that there is so much um, involved in that, that if we were to unpack all of that, I think what we find once again are the hands of patriarchy. Mm. You know, if we unpack that, we find that it's really um, the male hand coming to us and saying, you're responsible for all of this so that I can go off and do what I want to do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I some feel I'm sort of unlearning because when we are programmed to receive that pat on the head, uh, we look for that. And um, it's, it can be very detrimental to your sort of journey. I think your relationship with yourself, really. Um, so I feel like it's a lifetime's journey to sort of move away from that kind of positive reinforcement, you know, that you get from the pat on the head. Exactly. I think this is so true. You know, like, there are so many things that I have been noticing throughout my life that I wish we could reverse. Mm -hmm. One of them is... You know, we say to uh, girls, don't go out late at night because it's dangerous out there. The streets are dangerous. There are men out there who will take advantage of you. I think to myself, why don't we keep the boys inside? Why don't we let the girls roam free at <laughs> night? Why don't we let them, you know, go out and do whatever they want and feel that freedom that it feels to not be cloistered, yeah. to not be contained the yeah. way that girls are contained and told to look out for themselves? How freeing it would be to be outside in this world and not have people tell us uh, that we needed to protect ourselves. So that's one, that's just one example of something that I think we do to women that then we, um, we, as girls, you know, we hear this over and over, we incorporate this into our psyche. And then for the rest of our lives, we are trying to self-protect. We are trying mm -hmm. to, you know, look out for ourselves and all the other girls in our lives in that I way. I actually remember seeing a really interesting survey that was done uh, where they asked women if there were no for 24 hours if there were no men in the world what would you do and the overwhelming response was just go out and be free and not be scared or ah! <laughs> I just thought oh my gosh that's so true because that's what I would do as well and 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 you know and how and how how must men feel that they can just walk outside at two o'clock in the morning and not worry yeah. about that kind of thing yeah. I you know I would love to be able to go for a walk at two o'clock in the morning sometimes I'm awake 
in the middle of the night and I'm thinking about a character that I'm writing about, or I'm worried about something in my life. Mm -hmm. And I would love to be able to go out and just go for a walk because I do like to go for walks. And I and I work a lot of things out in my head as I walk. I'd love to be able to do that. But at two o'clock in the morning, there's that little voice in my head that says, oh, oh no, 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 don't, no, 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 you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to, you mentioned, you know, about uh, lecturing making a lot of mistakes and being flawed. And I thought that was really interesting. I love that like, all of your characters are incredibly flawed. Um, how much was that a conscious decision? How much was it just like a reflection of, you know, what you see in life? Um. I think that it was a conscious decision and it was a reflection of what I see in life. I think that what I find most interesting are characters who make mistakes and then learn from them, profit mm -hmm. from them. Because I think that as a young girl, and especially as a young girl who was an immigrant to a Western country mm -hmm. and completely uh, uh, separate from the country that I had grown up in and uh, suddenly surrounded by white people instead of brown people. Um, I think that I looked to books and to young women to help me model how I'm supposed to be in this world. Yeah. I didn't have any models, right? Because for so long, you and I, when we turned on the television or when we looked at movies, we didn't have women who looked like us yeah. on the major screens. We didn't have women like us who were uh, in the major media platforms and, uh, you know, actresses and, um, you know, doing things like being doctors and lawyers and engineers and, uh, you know, CID homicide investigators <laughs> and so on. Right. So um, so we had to look for models elsewhere. And I think I was always looking for those kinds of models in the books that I was reading. And I became a voracious reader as a result. The other thing that happened to me also, and I think maybe it's just in my nature, is I'm an introvert. Mm -hmm. I do not like to be at parties. I really don't like to go out. Um, I had an instructor in my master's program when I was learning how to write uh, this novel. Uh, and she said, you know, we should have T-shirts made that say real writers don't go out. <laughs> because <laughs> real writers tell you the opposite. <laughs> And, um, and so, you know, I, I was always an introvert. And so for me, it was much more comfortable to pick up a book and to bury my nose in it rather than to go outside and be with people or go to a dance and stand there and wait for somebody to ask me to dance. I just wasn't that girl mm -hmm. who wanted to be the party, uh, you know, uh, the party queen. Yeah. So, uh, you know, books were my comfort and characters who modeled uh, behavior for me that I wanted to emulate were my comfort. Yeah. And so that's what I wanted to write about. I'm much more interested in characters who make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And then what do they do with them? Do they learn from them? Do they not learn from them? Do they keep repeating the same mistakes? Mm -hmm. I think as we find out in book number two, yeah. uh, or uh, do they uh, do they move on to some point in their life where they completely transform themselves mm -hmm. the way that Lakshmi did at the end of the henna artist? And that's what I think you've covered sort of that range of growth in, in or across your books, you know, someone who doesn't learn, someone who learns a little bit, and then someone who completely transforms. And I, I think that's, a, it's great for people, like, as you say, to give people role models. Um, 
with the main character Lakshmi, one thing I noticed, uh, and it's something that I could relate to as well, is she blames herself a lot, constantly, yes. for things that happen in her life. Um, and and the, and I think um, where she sees she's failed as a woman, uh, she blames her. She uses that as a way to blame herself for the things that happen in life. Um, again, is that something that was? How much of it was a conscious decision, and how much was it a reflection of, of what you see in South Asian women? Um, I, you know, I am constantly blaming myself for things that really I don't have control over. Mm -hmm. And I have had to uh, over and over, you know, through therapy and through, um, you know, talking to different people, people who know better than I do, um, learning that there are some situations under my control, which I do have control over. And there are some situations I don't have control over. And then there is the past. I do not have control over the past anymore. And yet uh, I am constantly um, berating myself for things I should have done in the past. I should have said in a certain situation, you know, I should have reacted differently. Um, and so I, I used to think that that was just me. I used to think that maybe that's just me. And then I realized as I talked to other women that I think it is a female condition. I think we are uh, trained from a very young age to accept responsibility for so many things that happen, uh, things that we have absolutely no control over. Oh, you know, um, why did you make the potato so soggy? Nobody could eat and that curry was ruined and blah, blah, blah. You know, instead of saying, oh, well, you know what? Let's just go out to eat or let's just, you know, mm -hmm. let's just eat something else or whatever. There are so many instances in which we are blamed for things uh, and made to feel as if we could have completely controlled that situation and maybe we couldn't. Yeah. So I think that um, I'm trying to show that women do carry a lot of guilt around with them. And that guilt translates into other things, mm -hmm. as with the women in each of these books. That guilt, I think, sometimes translates into resentment. Mm -hmm. It translates into competition between women. Mm -hmm. It translates into uh, anger mm -hmm. and depression. Yes. And I have seen so many South Asian women, mm -hmm. um, whether or not I know them or not, I, I can see it in their faces. There yeah. is this uh, resignation yeah. and the resignation is, uh, looks like, um, well, I guess, you know, this is my lot in life. I have to accept it. Mm -hmm. I have, I, I, you know, I have done uh, things that uh, I wish I could have undone. They were all my fault. Uh, I wish my kids had turned out differently. That's all my fault. Uh, I wish that we could have been uh, richer in our <laughs> lives. Uh, that's my fault. <laughs> and so women accept so much responsibility and I see it in their faces. Mm -hmm. And I think that they grow old before their time because yeah. they are carrying so much with them all yeah. the time. I'm so glad then that, that you've, I, you know, that Lakshmi kind of, we see that in Lakshmi because I feel like, as you say, um, you, it wasn't something you, you thought it was something you only used to do. Um, and it's something I thought I only used to do. And I think it's probably like that for a lot of women. And so perhaps by reading this, we kind of relate to it and we realize that it's a commonality yeah. and, and therefore yeah. something we can overcome together. You know, what's interesting is when I talk to my father, when I talk to my brothers, when I talk to my husband, there is very little talk about oh, I, uh, that was my responsibility. I yeah. could have done better in that situation. 
that those words mm-hmm. are not really part of their language or part mm-hmm. of their thinking. Mm-hmm. And the only reason that I can think of that that isn't a part of their vernacular is because we as girls are taught to make it a part of our vernacular. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, there is very little innate behavior. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I like, I'm trying to think right now of the last time I talked to my brothers or my husband and they said, um, oh gosh, you know, I could have treated my mother better or I I, I could have been nicer to so-and-so in that particular situation. No, their, their thoughts don't go there because that's not how they are raised. Maybe, maybe I don't understand something about the human brain, the male mm-hmm. brain and the female brain, maybe their brains mm-hmm. are just not hardwired to think that way. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know, Zayani. I'm not a, I'm not an expert in psychology. <laughs> but it's, it's fascinating, this kind of look into the human psyche. Um, but yeah, speaking of kind of um, things that you've, I feel like you've brought a new light to, um, one, of my, one of my favorite bits about your writing, and I think one of the things that makes you such an exceptional writer is the way you've described the food and the henna. Um, and, I mean, I'm an Indian person and I, I actually grew up in India for a little bit, but I've never sort of seen food or henna in the way you kind of described it. You know, you made it seem exotic and magical. Um, but I think more than that, you really evoked an understanding and appreciation of it. Um, so what was, was that something you had to like, you know, like it, it's as a tool of healing for that Lakshmi and her clients. Was that something you had to learn as you were writing the book or did you grow up with this knowledge that were you taught it as you were raised? You know, um, so this is a really important part of what happened as I was writing this book. It took me 10 years yeah. to realize this book into readers' hands. And uh, during that time, all the research that I had done, all the books I had read, all the movies I had seen of that era, um, the people I had interviewed and uh, anything that I had researched uh, around herbs, what I realized is that I come from this amazingly rich, vibrant and millennia old culture. Mm -hmm. I come from this amazing culture that is rich in spices and uh, old medicinal healing, a very organic kind of healing. I come from a culture where people have remained resilient Mm -hmm. despite all of the centuries of colonization and invasion and raping and pillaging of its wealth. And I wanted to pay homage to that. Oh, that's beautiful. So when I was first an immigrant to America, you know, I was only nine and I didn't really understand the kind of questions that people were asking me. They were ridiculous questions now that I look back on them. (laughs) They were questions like, why do you people worship cows? Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, why why do you burn uh, your widows? Why do you uh, let your poor people starve? Why do you do this? Why do you do that? And I realized, and my little nine-year-old brain is thinking about this, and I'm thinking, you know, they think that the India I come from, the India I loved before we left, is a negative place, is a terrible place, is a dirty, illiterate, 
um, nothing to show for it kind of place. Mm -hmm. And I got really um, embarrassed and ashamed of my own birth nation. And I thought, I don't want to be from there. I don't want to be from a country where everybody thinks it's not a place that they ever want to go to. And they just look down upon it. The West looked down upon India. And this was in 1967 that we came here. So as we were going through, you know, as I was growing up here, I actually, you know, tried to never an answer any questions about India. I just tried to pretend I'm not from India, even though my name's Elka Joshi and, my, you know, I certainly don't have pale skin. And so, you know, I just thought, okay, uh, you know, I'm just going to deflect a lot of these questions that people are asking me. Uh, but as I started making all of those trips with my mother, to Jaipur and seeing India from her eyes and all the things she loved about India and then talking to my dad and having him tell me about all of the reasons that India ended up as a poor country after the British left, I started to gain such a bigger appreciation for my birth nation. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to convey a lot of that in this book. I wanted to say, look, you guys, uh, in the 1950s, right after India's independence, yes, the country was downtrodden, but it was because the British had left India in such a poor state. It was because the British had destroyed so many industries that India had to rebuild itself. India had to build its own dams and roads and bridges because the British had not done anything like that. And in fact, they had set up their own railroad system so the Indians couldn't be on their, their uh, British railroad system. And um, there were so many things like breaking the thumbs of the weavers, you know, in India so that the Indian textile industry fell and um, the British demolished all of the uh, companies that were making these fine silks and muslins. And uh, so many Indians, millions of Indians were out of work as a result of these kinds of industries that the British destroyed because the British wanted to sell their own textile from those Victorian textile mills that they were uh, building. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I thought this whole idea of romanticizing the Raj, which people have done through books and through movies, I want that to never happen again. Mm -hmm. I want us to talk about... Uh, an India without the British. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about an India post-British, the India that had to pick itself up again, rebuild itself without anybody's help, and uh, try to uh, set up their own policies about how they wanted to raise their children, school everybody, how they wanted to um, grow the industries that they felt were uh, the future of the world and mm -hmm. so on. And um, I also wanted to not sugarcoat the, I think, the less favorable parts about India, the caste system, mm -hmm. the classes, Mm -hmm. uh, and the way they treat each other, the, um, the cl colorism in India that is rampant. I didn't want to uh, overlook the poverty. I didn't want to overlook all those things, but build them seamlessly into the narrative mm -hmm. so that we could also see the beauty of India. We mm -hmm. could also see her heritage in the way that uh, she cooks her food, in the way that she decorates her houses, in the way that um, she grows her plants and uh, raises her flowers hours and uh, celebrates her festivals. You know, uh, Indians are 
are so colorful in the way and so vibrant in the way that they celebrate. And so I wanted to showcase all of that. I think that we have for too long learned about India from the British point of view. Yes. We need to learn about India from the Indian point of view. (laughs) And that's what I really wanted to accomplish in this novel. Mm -hmm. And I think, Zayani, this is why uh, my Indian readers, my South Asian readers, I should say, because I have a lot of Pakistani readers, I have Bangladeshi readers, and I have Sri Lankan readers. Uh, uh, All these book groups that I have talked to all over South Asia They love this novel Mm -hmm. because they say it gives them pride Mm -hmm. in where they are from. It gives Mm -hmm. them pride in their heritage. And I can't tell you how rewarding and satisfying that is. If I die tomorrow, I will have done what I set out to do. Oh, now I really think you have. I mean, it's a a wonderful achievement. And just looking at thinking about what you said, where you'd shown, um, you know, the caste system and the various classes of people. What I really liked about that was that as you say, when because a lot of um, the, I guess, media, literature and TV shows and everything comes from a British perspective and it sort of focuses on the upper echelons of society, but also doesn't give the characters enough depth. So they, you know, we don't see their desires and their, um, you know, wants and needs and all that, especially with the lower class and the poor people. Whereas by, I think, making Lakshmi someone who comes from a poor background, the main character and giving her all these, like, complex elements you know she's a very complex person um right. and and her ex-husband and stuff um yeah you you feel like you've kind of really given those characters depth and kind of shown that it doesn't matter where you come from you know we're all people we're all complex yeah and, yeah. and also I think as people make mistakes nations make mistakes too yeah uh and so I think just as people have um strengths and weaknesses nations have strengths and weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that just as we forgive people, we need to forgive nations. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I, I, uh, or, or maybe, maybe I I shouldn't say forgive people, because once again, I think I might be talking about the female language. But um, just as we make an effort to understand people Mm -hmm. uh, and the differences that they have with us, Mm -hmm. uh, I think we need to make um, we need to uh, make an effort to understand different countries and all the different aspects of them, the things we admire about them and things we don't admire about them. Yeah. You know, um, one of the things that I have learned from the author uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, uh, you know, is, uh, you know, she has said we should all be feminists, right? Yeah. But she also has this other uh, talk that she gives about how there is danger to a single story about a person or a country. And what I really felt when I was an immigrant first here in the West was that the danger to India's story uh, with the West was that India would always remain mired in poverty and uh, extreme illiteracy. And that is danger uh, in perspective because what they weren't looking at was the entire history of India, the centuries and centuries of poetry and literature that have Mm -hmm. come from India, the centuries of beautiful crafts like jewelry making and the the, uh, uh, weaving of fine textile cloth and so on, Uh, the medicinal 
the herbal medicinal uh, properties that we know about mm. with our food uh, that the West has very little knowledge of. So um, what people were doing in only knowing one story about India was ignoring all the rest. Mm-hmm. And I think Adichie's uh, advice is very well um, uh, positioned uh, when, especially when we're talking about uh, nations that we look at that that we consider underdeveloped mm. or third world. I think we really need to look at the centuries of development that came before we mm. started looking at them. Yeah, absolutely. I think you sort of touched on that as well in your second book because you it's obviously like twenty years later. I think twelve um, years. Yeah. Twelve years later. My my bad. Um, but yeah, it's uh, the the. Um, I mean, I don't want to spoil it for readers. Um, so I'll just say, I mean, I love the tone of it. It's com- tonally very different to the first book, um, but you're looking 12 years past uh, in the future after Indian independence and kind of the struggles that India is facing and, and you know how that affects people, like ordinary people and the decisions they make in their lives. Um, yeah, it was really interesting. I really enjoyed the mystery element actually. I thought that was, that was really <laughs> good fun. It was a little lighter. Um, but just as fascinating, if not as, almost a little bit more, because we learned so much more about the country um, and in that way. How did you, how come you decided to take that change between the two books? You know, the second book came to me in a very different way than the first book. The first book was really uh, inspired by my mother's life and how I could reimagine a more independent life for her in Lakshmi. But the second book really came about because these characters, since I have lived with them for 10 years, they are so clear in my mind what they do. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the second book, uh, Malik kept saying, I've got this story to tell. And, and what happened is the, this scene came to me for book number two. The scene was, uh, and I see everything the way that you would see a movie or a TV show. That's just the way my mind works. <laughs> I'm very visual because I started out life as an artist. And so I see color and I see patterns and everything. So what I saw was we are at the stall uh, of Nimi, who is the tribal woman who Malik gets involved with in book number two. And she is at her stall. She has all of her wares laid out in front of her. She is on the Shimla Mall, which is a big pedestrian mall, mall, as you know. And um, so a lot of people are milling about. And there are two people who seem to be making a beeline for her stall. And she knows that because they are they are headed exactly her way. There are all these other people kind of milling about, but they are headed her way. And I see that it's Lakshmi. Uh, on the one side and Malik next to her. And Malik is now 20 years old. (laughs) And uh, so they could be mother and son. That's Mm -hmm. how far apart their ages are. And uh, as they come closer and closer, I see that uh, on the left of her is a basket in which her two little kids are playing. And, uh, and then I see her in all of her tribal finery. So I think, well, where did that come from? I'm going to have to look up and see what are the tribes in the Himalayas mm-hmm. and uh, how do they dress and that kind of thing. And then Lakshmi comes and she's very impressed by this woman's uh, herbs and flowers and things that this woman has gathered because she comes from the higher mountains where mm-hmm. uh, they have different things that grow. So, uh, and then uh, I see um, Malik is very attracted to this woman Mm -hmm. and um, he is attracted to her, you know, he likes her children and, you know, he likes children. So um, he is sort of playing with her, her kids. 
And meanwhile, uh, Lakshmi realizes that there is some connection between them that she doesn't uh, quite approve of. That's yeah. like, like I like I can as, as I'm as I'm as I'm describing this to you, I can actually see the whole thing happening. Yeah. So um, so she so Lakshmi is thinking, okay. Malik is too young to get involved with a woman who already has two kids. I don't want him to have a difficult life the way that I did. I want him to have a better life. And he has already had this wonderful education at the boarding school. And, and by the way, Sayani, you know, when I have spoken to all these different book clubs around the world, uh, I have spoken to several people who went to Bishop Cotton School or uh, yeah, school. yeah, 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 it's a famous school. And so it's really fun to hear from them. And they go, oh, my God, it felt like I was there back in oh. Shimla again. <laughs> so he's been to Bishop Cotton. He has this great education. Lakshmi does not want him to waste it mm-hmm. and get married too young and have too many children and, you know, all of that. And so she sends him away. So that's when she decides I have to send him away Mm -hmm. uh, just to get away from this and see if he, this is really what he wants. And so that's the first scene that I saw and it was so clear and I could see this young woman and I could see how formidable she was at the stall. I could see that uh, she is going to be um, up against Lakshmi in trying to get Malik back to, uh, to Shimla. And, um, and I could see that. Uh, and I thought, now, what makes her as strong as Lakshmi? What, what is her background? What is her story? Right. So that's when I started doing all this research into the nomadic tribes. And I found out so much about them. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think India is such a land of contradictions, because you have mm-hmm. these nomads who, you know, who don't have schools and who really live off the land. And then you have people in Mumbai and Delhi and, you know, they, they, they couldn't survive a day on their own if they had to, because, you know, they're so used to taking tuk-tuks everywhere. And, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I learned so much as well, actually, from reading the book about these tribes in Shimla and the way they, you know, live off the Himalayas and stuff. It was really fascinating. Yeah. Um, so that's how. Character. Yeah. So, oh yeah. And so that's another reason why I wrote about Malik because Malik all my readers kept saying, you know, uh, I would ask them, who is your favorite character? And a lot of people would say, oh, you know, Lakshmi. But many people would say it's Malik. I love Malik. I love him. I, I think he's so loyal. He is so mm-hmm. funny. I want to know where does he come from? Uh, what was his uh, upbringing in the Pink City like? And what's going to happen to him next? And the weird thing is that in writing the henna artist, all those 30 drafts, I had like 150 pages on the floor that mm-hmm. never made it into the book. And so I knew what his backstory was. I know what Radha's backstory is. I know what Lakshmi's backstory is. I, I wrote out all of these backstories before I inserted them into the novel. Yes. So, so I had all of this material and I could just then insert it into <laughs> The Secret Keeper. And now you know where he comes from. Now you know what his deal was. And you know that he never knew who his father was and yeah. all of that. So yeah. It's what I, it's, as you say, that really interesting journey of kind of obviously Lakshmi is not his mother, and it, it's a sort of auntie boss is such a perfect term because it really encapsulates their relationship. But I feel like it takes on a slightly motherly role uh, yeah. in the second book, and it's interesting, I guess, in that way to see Lakshmi's journey as a mother and like yeah, she has to learn to let go and stuff. Now, Zayani, what do you think about the fact that Lakshmi is not uh, deciding is deciding not to have children? I think that's great, actually. I really feel like it ties in with who she is as a person and her character, you know. Yeah. Um, and But also, you know, 
what I admired was her strength and her conviction through all, you know, once she's made that decision and, and other decisions in her life, she just sticks to it and she's grounded and she's focused. And that's, you know, and I think it's a really admirable um, quality in her. You know, so um, when I wrote the first book and then in the second book, I made it clear that she's not having children. Yeah. In the first book, I had a lot of readers who said, oh, will she marry Dr. Kamar and have children? And I thought, you know, that's the wrong question to ask. The question to ask is, will she be fulfilled in the new thing that she has decided to do? And I think that a lot of people think that the only way a woman can be fulfilled is if she has children, she's married and she has children. And uh, I just never felt that way. I never, ever felt, even as a girl, and maybe it was because uh, my mother raised me so differently to think for myself and to know that my, my future was going to be my own. I knew as a little girl, I was not interested in having my own children. So I made this character of Lakshmi in the henna artist, somebody who is avoiding having children. So she is what I call child free. And uh, she knows that if she has children, especially in 1950s India, or even in the world of today, Mm -hmm. the moment that a woman has children, they become primarily her responsibility. Mm -hmm. Even if she has help, she's the one who's going to manage the help. She's the one who's going to manage their trips to the doctor and whether Mm -hmm. they have a fever and all of that kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, her life is never her own Mm -hmm. after she has children. And Lakshmi knows this. So in developing the character of Lakshmi, I was actually kind of worried Mm -hmm. that uh, readers would say to me, hey, you know, I hate this woman because she doesn't want to have children. This Mm -hmm. is not right. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, You know, she is not fulfilled. She is not this. She is not that. And um, but I went ahead with it anyway, because it was really important for me to have a character who decides not to have children. There are so few novels that I have ever read where a woman decides not to have children. And um, and I want this to be normalized. I want this to be okay, just like we think that LGBTQ now should be okay. I think childless women should be okay. Childless men should be okay. This is perfectly a normal thing because not everybody wants to have the same life. So I developed Lakshmi in this, uh, in uh, book number one. And here is the surprising reaction that I've had from a lot of women your age, Sayani, and also women who are 60, who have daughters who do not want children. They say to me, you know what? I'm so glad that you made the character of Lakshmi the way that she is, because you know, this is a way that a lot of women think like maybe they don't want children, but they feel pressured to have them. So a lot of women have them because it, it's supposed to be the way that life is supposed to go. But uh, these older South Asian women are also coming to accept their daughters who don't want to have children instead of thinking that that's abnormal, just thinking, you know, that's her life. She gets to make that decision. I'm so glad that you're seeing that change, actually, uh, through writing this book. I was really satisfied with Lakshmi's life in the second book. Um, And that was really important to me because I remember when I finished the first one and I thought, oh, she's worked so hard. You know, I really hope that she finds like that kind of peace and like a good life. Um, And then in the second one, you know, when she settles down with Dr. Kumar, she's got the clinic. And I was just, I was like, oh, I'm so glad. (laughs) Her her, her sort of ending was very satisfying, actually. Um, Yeah. And it, uh, 
it wouldn't have made sense, I think, for her to have children. She just wasn't that type of person. So Right. And, you know, I, I, I've always felt that, too. I thought, you know, I'm not... I'm not particularly interested in mm-hmm. other people's children either. Mm-hmm. You know, just like Radha says to Lakshmi uh, mm-hmm. in the first book, you know, she says, um, and 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 I don't know whether you should put this in the in the in the interview or not, because you know, maybe some women will be mad at me for saying this. But you know, Radha says to Lakshmi, you look at other people's children and you say, Oh, you know, uh, uh, you know how pretty she is or whatever, but then you don't ask any other questions about them. You're not, you don't seem very interested. And that really comes from me. I'm not particularly interested in other people's children. (laughs) I am far more interested in the adult with those children and what she is doing to fulfill her life. What is she doing in her life that is interesting and exciting to me? That's what I want to talk to them about. So, um, so I, 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 you know, a lot of what Radha says to Lakshmi in the henna artist are things that I think people have said to me, right. uh, you know, or that I have felt about myself, like, what's wrong with me that I'm not, that I'm not so motherly? What is wrong with me that I'm not this kind of big nurturing person? Mm-hmm. And I, and, and I finally, I think, have accepted the fact that not all of us are meant to be nurturers or mothers yeah. or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's totally okay. And actually, Lakshmi is still such a good person. I mean, she helps so many people and, you know, and that that becomes her life goal, really. So I feel like in a way she is actually very nurturing. Um, Well, yeah, that there are many different ways to nurture. That's really the message I was trying to get across. There are many different ways to give to your family and your community. And uh, having a child is just one of those ways. But I think not having a child and devoting your life to something else is also another way to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, You... um, um, you mentioned the third book that you're working on, which is very yeah. exciting, Rather's story. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, this is so fun. Can I tell you about it? Oh, yeah, this is my question. Please tell me about okay. it. <laughs> Do you know what? The, like the last thing that you said, I mean, I don't want to spoil it for readers, but what you said that she's doing in the future, I was like, that's impressive. Like, <laughs> I'm <really laughs> impressed with that. <laughs> Well, um, I think that just like all the characters change, one thing that Radha realizes as she gets older is she is ambitious in her work too. She thought that all she wanted was this family. She just really wanted this family. Well, she gets the family she wanted in book number three. Mm -hmm. The year is 1973. And uh, she married this young Frenchman who was traveling through the Himalayas. Uh, He is uh, living in Paris. And so she elopes with him. Uh, They get married and they have two little girls by the time we meet up with her. She is now 30, the same age that Lakshmi was in The Henna Artist. She is on the cusp of designing a signature scent for her master perfumer. How did she get there? Uh, she got herself a chemistry degree at the Sorbonne. Now, um, you know, she was so good at mixing paints and mixing henna uh, paste. And so she did, she realized that she wanted to study chemistry. Mm-hmm. And one of the uh, jobs that she was able to get upon graduation is in a fragrance lab. Mm-hmm. So she goes to work at the fragrance lab. She works her way up. And, you know, you can be a lab assistant to a master perfumer for 10, 12 years before you ever become a junior master perfumer yourself. So um, she's been working in this lab. She is now one of three assistants to this chief perfumer, who is, by the way, a Jewish woman. I wanted to have a Jewish woman uh, in the third novel. 
It's very important for me to always have women in these high uh, positions. So we can see the progression from 1955 in India to 1973 in Paris. We see that women are in some of these roles. And, you know, last week when I was in New York and I met with this male master perfumer, uh, he said, oh, Alka, you know, there weren't any women uh, who were master perfumers in that era. And I said, well, what about Celine? uh, What's her name? Celine Garnier or something like that. And he goes, oh, yes, yes, yes. I guess she was. Yes. (laughs) So yes, there were, you know, I, I, I already did my research on three women who were very prominent uh, at that time. And they have to fight their way up to get there because this was a male dominated profession and it was father to son handed down. It was very, uh, huge nepotism was involved in, in the fragrance industry. So, um, anyway, Radha is working for this female. She's on the cusp of helping her design this signature scent for this client. And uh, there is a knock at the door. And uh, she lives in the seventh arrondissement. And the reason I have her living there is because that's where Brad and I lived in 2003 when we went to to Paris to live for a year. And uh, so she lives in the seventh and she lives in this fifth floor walk up. You know, it's a tiny apartment, but she's got two little girls. She's got her husband there. And she has actually gone to Jaipur. Uh, Well, actually, she's gone to India. She's not in Jaipur, but she's gone to India to meet up with Lakshmi so they can go to this village in India where one of these uh, base oils is uh, produced for fragrances. Uh She is looking for a very particular fragrance that's going to help make this, uh, you know, a signature scent. And I don't know if you know this, but I'm learning all of this stuff about how Many of these base scents are made in India. The tuberose, the sandalwood oils, the, um, uh, you know, some of the stuff that goes into the oud perfume, you mm-hmm. know, things like that. They're all manufactured in India. Mm-hmm. So I want people to know this because I don't mm-hmm. even think people are aware that so much of this is, is developed in India. So uh, Radha is down in India with Lakshmi uh, figuring out, uh, she's talking to some, uh, what do they call them? Atharwalas. You know, the, you know uh, 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 it, uh, in the English, it's pronounced atar, like rose atar, okay. uh, this atar, okay. that atar. And of course, in India, they're called atarwalas. So the people who really understand these fragrances. Now, there's a knock on her door in Paris and Pierre is at home with the girls, Asha and Shanti. And um, on the other side of that door is a boy of 18 years of age and he has blue green eyes. <laughs> And he is named Nikki, and yes. he has come from Jaipur. He has run away from home because okay. he saw something uh, on his mother's desk that um, revealed to him that he was not their natural born son. Mm-hmm. And he wants to know who is Radha, who is his father, because his father's not named in any of the documents, and uh, you know what's going on. So, uh, uh, you know, I was like, okay, so how. How is Nikki going to explain who he is to Pierre, who has no idea that Radha had a son when she was 13? (laughs) And also, how is Pierre going to explain to his wife, hey, by the way, there's a there's a boy here. (laughs) Who the hell is he? (laughs) So all of this is going to happen in book number three. So I'm doing not only all the research on fragrances um, and how they're made and how a woman like Radha would have been. I guess, perceived an Mm -hmm. Indian woman working in the fragrance industry would have been very unusual uh, in Paris. So 
I want to explore that. And I'm exploring adoptions, adoptive parents, adoptees, as they learn about their adoptions, how they react. So mm -hmm. I'm talking to a lot of people who are um, therapists and people who've worked in that industry. And then the third thing that I wanted to explore also and let the world know about is how, um, uh, is how common it is for Indians to go across the world and make new lives in mm -hmm. other parts of the world. Uh, I don't think people realize that there is, there is an Indian family in every uh, square inch of this world <laughs> that, you know, that we move across this diaspora very freely and uh, still maintain a lot of the tradition, but then also manage to absorb um, and incorporate the traditions of the countries that we that we go into. So um, I, I think what I'm really trying to say in this is how global we are. Yeah. So uh, so that's what my uh, intent is for book number three. I always have intention. I always mm -hmm. have a very clear intention of what I'm trying to say about India, the Indian people, uh, and trying to have as few non-Indian characters in my books as possible. <laughs> I'm so ex I'm so excited about this new book. Oh, honestly, it sounds really amazing. Um, it's great for other. You know, she goes from the bad luck girl to Paris. I mean, what a glamorous city to be living in. And right. I think it'd be really. I mean, I'm so excited to learn about Nikhil and his story. Um, hopefully we'll see a bit of fun with you as well because she's a very interesting character I think you know oh um, you will see them and yeah. you know what's really interesting I had my first sort of private um, uh, uh, sort of discussion about the secret keeper um, with uh, sort of my super fans you know <laughs> yesterday and uh, there were we had a group of uh, 10 super fans and they have all read the book and one of them is from Nigeria and mm -hmm. she said, yeah, because these were from all over the world. And so she said, um, you know, in Nigeria, um, you know, which has a culture that is very similar to India, you know, in the patriarchy and, you know, all of that kind of mm -hmm. thing, the way women are treated and so on. Um, in Nigeria, the birth family, you know, so the Singhs would be very, um, they would have been uh they would have easily given up this um, illegitimate baby for adoption when he was a baby, but then they would like to lay claim to him later. And I said, oh, my oh. gosh, you you have just uh, unearthed one of the things that I am putting in book number three, which is the Sings want that baby back. Oh. They want to they want to claim him now. Okay. And so, yes, Parvati will be back and Samir will be back and <laughs> and uh, and Ravi. Yeah, they 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 want him now because guess what? There is no other. Um, uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, a male descendant who can, uh, you know, who will who will inherit their empire that they oh. have built up in the United States. So they they need a male heir. Because <laughs> wow. oh, remember, I'm Sheila. Forward to this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because you know, Sheila has the two girls, right? Sheila has two girls, and Govind is is going to decide not to have any children. So, um, what do you hope readers take away from the second book? Um, I want them to take away. Oh, what a good question. What a good question. Um, I think I want them to take away the fact that um, we all have the capacity to grow and change in our lives, mm -hmm. that we have the capacity to, um, uh, to demonstrate grace, uh, and uh, that we need to let children 
um, grow up and make their own mistakes. Uh, we need to let go as parents. Like I think Lakshmi is, as you said, she is sort of uh, standing in as uh, Malik's mother and she has to learn at the end, you know what? I, I think I've done my job. Mm-hmm. I think from here on out, you knew, you know, I, I, I trust you to do what you think is right for you. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I remember my dad so often saying to me, I don't want you to make the same mistakes I made. You know, I don't want you to, to do that. And I would say, dad, they're going to be my mistakes and I will learn from them. If you protect me my whole life, I won't be able to learn from anything. Yeah. And um, mistakes are the only ways that I'm going to grow. And it was so hard for him, uh, I think, to let go. It wasn't hard for my mother, but it was really hard for my dad to let go uh, and, you know, to, to make sure that I was going to be okay in my life. Uh, he was so worried about me all the time, but now he's like, honey, I shouldn't have worried all those years. Oh, <laughs> you know, he's still alive. He's still like 89 years old and he oh, is wonderful. amazing. That's and he amazing. is my, yeah, he's my biggest supporter. I, oh, I love, I that, love guy. that. Yeah. Um, can I ask who your favorite character is? Or is that an impossible? Yes. So Lakshmi is my favorite character because okay. she has so much of me in her. Uh, and also she has so much of my mother in her. So mm-hmm. yes, she, and you know, everything that I think she thinks uh, about in her life or, um, you know, the, the, the kinds of um, thought processes and the actions that she takes, I think are so much of what I have done in my life. Yeah. So um, yeah, I, she always, she has my heart always. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, I, I adore Malik. I adore him. I would love to have a Malik in my life. <laughs> it wouldn't uh, be all actually. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, I just think that, you know, if you needed him to help you with anything he would just be there and he wouldn't expect anything in return yeah yeah it's it's that friendship that's really invaluable um and of course it's being made into a tv show which is so so exciting uh and congratulations i mean that's that's an incredible achievement well, thank you. Now, you know, the road is long, right? To, to get to the actual production, it's, it's a long road and there's many obstacles along the way, just like in Lakshmi's journey. So there is the obstacle of, you know, uh, which streaming service is going to lay mm. down the money for mm. all, all of the, these shows that they want to do. Because the sets, uh, I'm guessing, are going to be really big and beautiful but expensive. Yes, yes. So, so they do, I, so I think, you know, they, they want a lot of money for this. And so, um, uh, you know, I think that's going to impact it. COVID is going to impact uh, the production because it has to take place in India. Uh, you know, it's so funny. People ask me, uh, you know, where's it going to take place? And I'm thinking, where else? <laughs> I mean, can you reproduce Jaipur somewhere else? Or can you reproduce Shimla somewhere else? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, maybe, I mean, I don't know, maybe they'll go to Kazakhstan or, you know, I, 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 I don't know. But I think, uh, you know, we need to make sure that India is healthy before production starts. Um, and then, of course, um, you know, there's all of this thing about do we get the stars that we want? Now, we know Frida is on board as Lakshmi which will be lovely because every interaction I have with her, she is so thoughtful. She is so serious. Mm-hmm. I didn't expect her to be as serious as she is, but she's a very serious person. Okay. Uh, and, um, and she responds to my text right away, which is super nice. Um, and so, uh, you know, I love her and I love Michael. Michael Edelstein is the major executive producer of this. And he's the first one to read the henna artist. And he's mm-hmm. the one who is largely responsible for, I think, 
um, the Downton Abbey franchise, you know, right. the, the global product that it has become because he was running NBC Universal Studios in London when they started uh, filming season two onwards of Downton Abbey. Okay. So he, uh, at the moment that he read The Henna Artist, he said, oh my God, we could make this an Indian Downton Abbey. And, <laughs> yeah. and he loves India. He goes to India all the time. And so he has no problem at all with having 99% Indian characters as opposed to those other shows that we see like Downton Abbey where they have like one or two or three Indian characters and they're just always royalty. You know, they're not, they're not like the real people. in life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's really, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and I, you started actually writing in your fifties, you said. Um, you yeah. had a wonderful, successful career in marketing for that. So what was it like to kind of change stream and start a new career later in life? I have done that, you know, a couple of different times in my life. So it really wasn't um, wasn't difficult to make okay. the transition. Okay. Um, I think by the time that I started writing, I wanted to do something different. You know, I did want to... Um, maybe uh, change. And I wasn't quite sure how or what, but I did want to do something different. And then when I got so much encouragement in my writing classes, just like my husband had predicted I would, uh, they, they kept saying, you know, you're, you are a natural writer, you, you can do this, and you can describe scenes, and you can describe people. And I didn't realize that I think all those years I was in advertising, I actually was uh, you know, writing scenes all the time. And I was uh, developing characters in these very short timeframes, like here's a commercial for a minute and here's a, here's a radio spot for a half, half a minute. So I was developing all of this and I didn't even realize I was building those skills. Yeah. So uh, by the time I was in my master's program, I thought, I think I can, I think I can do this. I think I can do this full time. Yeah. Isn't that and a wonderful so, realization when you realize yes. you can do that? Yes, yes. And then last year uh, for, uh, no, actually 2019, I think I finally hung up my shingle and I just mm -hmm. said, okay, I'm not going to do the marketing anymore. Uh, I don't field any more of those phone calls. Now I'm just going to do the writing because in 2019, we also got the contract for book number two. Mm -hmm. And uh, last year, we got the contract for book number three. So mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm already like scheduled out until 2024. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. That's busy. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that was always my um, agent's uh, goal. My mm -hmm. literary agent, Emma Sweeney, she said to me, if we don't make sure that your first book is a winner, right mm -hmm. out of the gate. You mm -hmm. will not get a second book contract and you will not get a third book contract. Yeah. You're, you will then have to shop around for another publisher. You will have to shop around, um, you know, for um, maybe another literary agent because I may not be able to represent you. She wanted to always be with authors who would write books two, three, four, five, six. See, so, you know, she wants to be with full-time authors. And so she wanted to develop me into a full-time author. Mm -hmm. And that was always her goal. Um, and I was frustrated with her so many times because, uh, you know, she was, I thought that she was keeping me from mm -hmm. going out into the world. And really what she was doing was just making sure it was the best product it could be. Mm -hmm. And when it was the best product, that's when she went out and sold it. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm so it's so nice to hear like a positive supportive story like that, you know, because I feel oh, like yeah. sometimes in the creative industries, it can seem quite daunting and scary. Um, I definitely, uh, Zani, I've definitely found 
um, advertising to be a very competitive industry. And I, and I, um, uh, but not in a positive way, in a very negative way. Okay. And, uh, you know, I, the whole time that I worked in ad agencies, I found it to be extremely cutthroat. Mm. Um, just like that series, Mad Men. I could barely watch Mad Men because it reminded me so much of <laughs> working in the ad uh, industry. And so uh, that's when I went off to start my own business because I thought, I don't want to be part of this cutthroat industry. I want to develop my own ideas about how I want to work, when I want to work, whether I want to work my ass off or whether I want to take three, three months off or six months off. Um, and whom I want to hire. I just want to hire women. I just want to give women the opportunity to uh, also make a lot of money doing good work. Uh, so, you know, these were things that were important for me. And, um, you know, I think going into my own business was also very similar to what I've been able to do now as an author, because really, when you become an author, you are your own business. This, you know, you are managing uh, your publisher is helping you, but you are managing your marketing, you, you are managing the administrative work about, you know, sending out your uh, advanced copies to different people. And, um, you know, I am very lucky, unlike most authors, that I have a publisher who is really supporting me. Mm. So every two weeks, we have strategy meetings. You know, and they're telling me, here's how much has sold. Here's what we need you to talk about. Um, here is what we're doing to get you uh, publicity here, there and everywhere. Mm -hmm. I have a great partnership with my publisher. Not every author has that mm -hmm. because I think they don't know how to run a business. They don't know how to develop those relationships. They don't know how to um, make sure that they're working as hard as a publisher instead of just letting go and saying, oh, my publisher will do everything. Yeah. Does, that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I think you should actually give lessons on how to run a business. I know I would attend them for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what I think? I think that we South Asian women are perfectly poised to run our own businesses. I think I learned so much from my mother and father. They didn't have their own businesses, mm -hmm. but I learned so much from them about how to manage my money, mm -hmm. you know, how to, how to live on a shoestring. Because mm -hmm. for many years, I, you know, I mean, for um, the first few years uh, in at the advertising world, I made barely enough to make my mortgage, barely. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I learned how to live on a shoestring. I learned um, how to manage my time. I also have great work habits. So you know what, if I have to stay up till two o'clock in the morning to finish something, I will stay up all night to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and you probably have the same work habits that I do. I will work nights, I will work weekends. And I know so many South Asian people who do that. They don't even mm -hmm. think about, oh, it's Saturday and Sunday is coming up, so I'm not going to work anymore. <laughs> you know, uh, so uh, I think that we have the kind of work habits set up already. We have the traits necessary to run our own businesses. Um, and, and I would just encourage all South Asians to go into their own business. <laughs> and that way, that way you're no longer um, wedded to the, um, what do you call it? The, the patriarchal life. And you're no longer wedded to the, um, to the sort of Western corporate life. Yes, perfectly leads me to my last question, which is that there is in, you know, in the Western world, there are so few South Asian authors, and many of them are reluctant to get into it because they feel they won't be accepted, um, because their work might be too diverse. Uh, do you have any advice for them? 
You know, I actually find this very interesting that they are reluctant because I think the publishing world is very hungry for voices that are different. Uh, the publishing world wants to hear uh, about interesting uh, settings. They want to hear about um, cultures that are different from the Western ones. They want to know about um, different traditions and uh, ways of being. They want to especially hear about women's journeys and uh, you know how women navigate the various situations of their lives. Uh, I, and I think the more personal the fiction can be, the more personal, the more relatable it can be to the people who are going to read it, uh, the, the, the better you are. And uh, I encourage all people, you know, every woman who wants to write about her culture or something that is different about her, um, I encourage them all to write because um, we all, I think, want to know about things that are different from us. I think, you know, especially during the pandemic, it's been a great time to explore yeah. uh, traveling in books. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, if you come from uh, a Western culture, but you've been raised primarily in an Eastern tradition, that's very interesting to people. Yeah. Um, or if you've been raised in India and you are in some kind of an interesting situation where, uh, I don't know, your parents are divorced and nobody else's parents are divorced. And how does that make you feel? That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think our differences are our superpower. I really like to tell people that uh, whatever it is that makes you, that sets you apart from everybody else is interesting. It is more interesting than you realize. And there is no shame in being different. There is no... Um, it, uh, you know, you don't have to excuse yourself for being different from everybody. You really need to um, celebrate your differences. That is what's going to get you recognized in this world. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Yeah. Thank you so <laughs> much for speaking to me today. It's been such a joy. I feel like I've learned so much. You're so welcome. Anytime that, I, that you think I can help you with anything, please feel free. <laughs> to contact me. Oh, with you. Thank you. Thank you. You're so generous. Actually, I'd love to interview you after your third book. Um, because so, like, <laughs> I'm just I'm very excited about it already. You know, the setting, the characters, the whole perfume thing is so lovely. <laughs> me too. I'm really excited about it too. <laughs> yeah. um, it's been really a joy to talk to you. You're such a wonderful person. Thank you for your time today.